Thank you for tuning in to the Vigilance Press Podcast. My name is James Dossie. We're here to talk about role-playing games, and tonight I have a designer of one of the most famous role-playing games in the history of the hobby, uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition designer Rodney Thompson. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Actually, it's afternoon for you, isn't it? It it is mid-afternoon for me, yes. (laughs) So, um... What, uh, just to kind of fill in people who might not have listened to the previous podcast, uh, what design work do you do on, on the D&D books? Sure. Uh, well, I was the lead uh, lead rules developer of the Player's Handbook, which means that I was sort of uh, in charge of making sure all of the rules were doing what we wanted them to do. Um, I was uh, heavily involved in the open playtest process. I did a lot of design work as well. Uh, it's funny, all of us, it, like if you look at the credits, anyone that you see in like the design and development editing side of things, uh, we all wear many hats because you know I can point to just about any class in the play handbook and say, oh, I designed you know X percent of this class, or like all these class features, I designed those things. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of what I did was taking inspiration from what other designers were doing, and then tweaking and fixing and, and doing repairs. Uh, so that was the player's handbook. My biggest contribution was probably on the player's handbook. Uh, then in the monster manual, I was in charge of rules development uh, there as well, and did a lot of work on the back end of the game, working on like the monster stats and determining how tough monsters are um, in the monster manual. A lot of my work is gauging the actual strength and and sort of potency of a monster, uh, and that was that was the bulk of my contribution to that book. And then in the DMG, I'm sort of uh, I'm again a man of many hats. I have design in there, I have writing in there, I have rules development in there. Uh, I wrote a massive portion of all of the um, behind the scenes and background tinkering stuff, like creating your own monster and designing encounters and stuff like that. A lot of that was my design, so uh, mostly mechanical, but with uh, also a f- uh, some focus on DM. Uh, guidance, like all throughout the the chapters on like how to run the game, you'll find little uh, notes and tidbits and uh, pieces of advice that were directly drawn from my own personal experience, not only DMing throughout my life, but also DMing uh, during the playtest process of fifth edition. So, um, yeah, I was I was involved with uh, all three of the books. I also did. Um, uh, stat block and uh, encounter development for the two Tyranny of Dragons adventures as well. Oh, very cool. So, basically, um, you've 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 had your fingers in all of these books. And one of the things, yes. uh, when we last spoke, mm-hmm. we uh, the the starter set had just come out, and right. so you only had two kind of. Uh, examples of, of Dungeons and Dragons out there in, in the mm-hmm. wild uh, and that was these the the online free downloadable right. rule set the basic rules mm-hmm. and then you um, you call that basic D&D right? Uh, I think it is technically the Dungeons and Dragons basic rules but uh, okay. yeah I, for, for our conversation purposes basic rules is fine yeah so if anybody wants to go search for that and download that off the uh, the D&D website they can they can do that um, and of course, the starter set, which included an adventure. One of the mm-hmm. things I was really surprised at, um, pleasantly surprised at, looking through that adventure the other day, because I went back and sort of reread it, was just how much it went into kind of side quests and and mm-hmm. other, other you know, there's all sorts of sort of ant trails that you can follow off into yeah. interesting places. Um, but uh, what? 
we didn't have in front of us when we talked last were the three books that are now right. all three of the core books are now out in the wild. That is true. What kind of feedback have you been getting? Uh, overwhelmingly positive. I have to say that it's been a great relief to me after the three years of design development to finally, uh, you know, have these things getting out there in the wild. And so, on the one hand, you know, it's just a relief to know that hey, we actually can manage to produce these books, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's also been a great relief to me that people have really embraced it and are really excited. And uh, I, I have to say, it is easily the most positive response I've ever gotten to uh, the work I've done at RPG. Now, it, it comes close to uh, how people have responded to Lords of Waterdeep, so I feel like I've, I've kind of gotten the, the big, uh, you know, I, oh, now I know what it means to make a board game that people like. Now I know what it means to make an RPG that people like. And, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to get to work on the Star Wars Saga Edition RPG uh, many years ago, and, you know, Saga Edition fans and Star Wars fans can be really great, but uh, even, you know, compared to the response we got to Saga Edition, it's been really refreshing to talk to people about... Uh, D&D 5th edition, just because, you know, D&D um, has gone through some turmoil over the last few years uh, in the community, and, you know, it's been one of those uh, uh, situations where I think a lot of people weren't really sure what we were going to produce. I mean, I, it's, it's funny the number of people I run into at like conventions or things like that where they're like, oh, well, we weren't sure if we were going to like this version of the game, but when the books came out, we got them, and we were really excited, now we're running a campaign. And on the one hand, I'm like, oh, that's that's great. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. But then I start thinking, well, you know, we did like this two-year open playtest. You could have figured it out way before this, right? <laughs> you, you could have you known uh, coming up to this point just by playing. So I think um, there was a... We had great participation in the open play test, and it was super valuable and really, really great. Um, but I also think there was this, I don't want to call them a silent majority because I don't know how many of them there are, but this sort of silent contingent of people out there that were sort of waiting to see what we would produce, right? Like they mm-hmm. they were uh, you know, either playing other games or they were just sort of like, you know, we, we don't want to mess with anything behind the scenes. We just want to see what you actually produce. And uh, the response has been really, really great. And I've been relieved uh, also that... As each book has come out, people are picking them up and really seeing the value of them, which might be slightly different than the value you got out of a previous version of that book, right? Like our monster mm-hmm. manual is very, very dense with story material, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also very – we, we really put a lot of effort into making sure that there were large, colorful illustrations of each of the monsters, and so it's been nice to see people say, like, oh, I, I love the art in this book, or I love the, you know, the story hooks that have been built into everything, because they're, you know, when you, when you sort of picture, okay, what's the monster manual going to have in it? And you're like, yeah, it's going to have some flavor text, it's going to have some stat blocks, and it's you know, going to have some art in it, right? But until the thing actual, actually comes out, you don't know how well each of those different parts of it are going to be received. And so now that it's out, people are really you know, responding well to it. And uh, of course, now the DMG has just come out, and not everybody has one. It, it, you know, the player's handbook, uh, it was a course of like two months before people had sort of found all the little hidden gems in there. And actually, it's funny, I, I just saw a, a thread on a message board recently about you know, hidden gems in the, uh, in the 
player character mechanics in the classes. Uh, and it's been nice to see people noticing things that I, I put into the game, or that we put into the game, I should say, that, uh, you know, I was like, okay, this is going to be really cool when somebody figures this thing out, or really cool when this comes up in an adventure, but it doesn't look that great on the surface. And so when that happens and people find those things, it's really exciting to me. And then now people are starting to do that in the Monster Manual, and uh, people are just starting to do it in the DMG as well. But the DMG is is chock full, and I, I don't use that term lightly. Um, there, I think, like the Monster Manual, we could have probably produced a DMG that was half again as large, if not twice as large, and had no problem filling it with, with content because uh, we definitely there were a lot of things that we wanted to put in that um, you know ended up either not making it in or making it in a reduced form, and you know part of it was just time issues, but mm-hmm. also part of it was just you know physical space. A, a book can only hold so much, right? So I have it's to been, admit that uh, even even. Uh, just hearing you say that kind of makes me smile because one of the things I was going to suggest is that uh, um, I'm still jumping around in the book. It's very hard for me to read a Dungeon Master's Guide uh, sequentially. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm always jumping around and looking for stuff, so it's it's like exploring a brand new you know shopping mall of ideas. I mean, there's just right. constantly cool stuff around every corner. Um, but uh, I, w- I wanted to, to ask you. With with the kind of the monster manual and the DM's guide, uh, there seems to be actually starting with the player's handbook. Actually, there seems to be kind of a design uh, aesthetic going through it that feels, um, at, at, uh, in the one hand, a little bit old school because it kind of it, it dials back on the number of rules that you're presenting, mm-hmm. um, but it also feels like there's a, a lot more options being presented as options in a sense that you're encouraging people to kind of hack the, their own game. Is that something that was like a conscious decision, or is that just kind oh, of yeah. the the aesthetic that you guys put together unconsciously? No, it was definitely conscious. And in fact, that really goes back to the very, very first meetings that we had when we started talking about the design of the game. And, and we knew, you know, one of the big sort of truths about D&D that it was, that it was occasionally difficult for people to swallow was that, you know, People play D&D differently, right? And even though D&D comes with a rule book that tells you how to play it, everybody's got their own sort of spin on it. Everybody has their own different take on it. And we really wanted to embrace that from the very very beginning. And so throughout the playtest process, a lot of times we would talk to people and say, like, oh, yeah, we're thinking about, you know, a rules module or, or an optional rule or a variant rule that we could include that will let you do this thing that you just suggested. But it might not make it into the core. Um, and, you know, the end result is that we have a, a bunch of those options uh, scattered throughout. And really, we could have, we could probably have done more if we'd had more time, more space, uh, more ability to play test. Because mm-hmm. there are, there, like, I mean, it, I might be hyperbole to say that there's an infinite number of ways to play D&D. But um, there are a lot of times when we were making design decisions about the core rules of the game or about a class or about a race or a monster where we would come down to it and say, well, we've got these two different ways or three different ways that we could accomplish goal X, right? Which one should we use? And a lot of times we would run into the situation where it's like, well, uh, actually, they're both kind of equally valid. So we need to figure out what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know when some people are reading like the optional uh, healing rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide, we got some some. Uh, I've seen some people say like, "Well, you know, these seem really overly simplistic. Like it can't just be as easy as changing the length of a 
uh, a rest or, or what have you. And it's like, well, actually, it is that easy. It's just <laughs> yes, going to have it it, it's just going to have a profound impact on your game, right? And that's the the thing that we can't uh, necessarily communicate is like I mean, we, we we've tried to make it so like okay this is going to create this sort of tone of the game but um you know if you change okay a short rest at eight is eight hours and a long rest is uh 24 hours or a week or whatever right that's going to have a huge impact on the narrative of your game but as far as like mechanics and resources go it you know it, you're still on all the same pacing right it's just you know what what does that narrative pacing mean so um, I think there's going to be a lot of cases where when people look at these optional rules they're going to find that these are really good at creating a different uh, theme or flavor or mm-hmm. narrative style for their game, but I think there's also going to be a little bit of a learning curve as people realize that we've put those out there and said, yes, it is totally valid for you to say that it takes you a week to heal up from your injuries, but we also rely on the DM to you know, take into account what that means for the narrative of their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to admit that uh, my players and I are used to more kind of super heroic flavor to our games, so mm-hmm. we immediately went with kind of the more epic scale of, of reducing the rest times right. down to uh, a minute and uh, an hour. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of people will do that, right? And that's and that's totally fine if that's the way people want to run their game. And one of the things that I've noticed is that that really did have an impact, and it really mm-hmm. does you know, affect the narrative because it simplifies... You, you don't have to change any other rules. You can just, you know, change the, the, the feel of the narrative and it and it makes the game more like that kind of elevated superhero style game. Some of the other kind of and this goes back to my nerdy, you know, origins because I'm a big comic book geek, so mm-hmm. everything I look at I try to compare to superheroes. And I saw a lot of like it would be really easy to hack a lot of these character classes to be kind of you know, it's like the the, uh, the 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 fighter, the the war master or battle master mm-hmm. yeah. could very easily be a Captain America with his ability to throw sure. inspiration dice around. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I was looking at the the wizard and and the conjurer, and I'm like, oh mm-hmm. hey, there's Green Lantern. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So I I really liked um, how how that was baked into a lot of the classes and didn't require you to go fishing and using resources that, uh, to build characters uh, like like feats unless you really wanted to add that to the game but they didn't necessarily uh, cost you know they didn't require so much planning ahead on the player's part they were kind of just baked yeah. into the core mechanics. I think a lot of the philosophy we took when we designed all the different classes and feats and different game elements uh, kind of lent itself to um, a little bit more uh, broad usefulness for those different things. I, th- I think we tried to think about uh, everything like from a class feature to a spell in terms of like what kind of uh, what is this doing for you in the game, right? And then we tried not to duplicate our efforts too much or not to make those things too hard to reach because if somebody wants to do something, we don't want to put too many hurdles in front of them so that they can achieve it. And I think that that's going to take some adjusting on the part of some of our players too. And I've already seen it where like I, I got a player in my own game who uh, took the um, uh, one of the archery feats, right? And he took the archery feat, and he's like, wait a minute, you mean I get to do these things, and I don't have to take, like, three feats, or I don't have to, you know, build up a bunch of levels? He's like, yeah, you get to do that thing. Now, feats are a more 
scarce resource now that they are than they would have been in previous editions. But we want to let you sort of get to the good part pretty quick, and then it, it's sort of what you make of it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, what that actually ended up doing, though, interestingly, is you know I said earlier. Uh, we could have, you know, filled a whole other monster manual, a whole other DMG with leftover stuff, um, and that's true for those two books. I actually don't feel the same way about the player's handbook. There are very, very few places where I wish that we could have another edition put in, um, but for the most part, I would say like ninety percent of everything that I wanted to be in it is in it, which it, I think is is pretty great. And if it's, you know, it means that. I, I think that we're covering a really broad swath of archetypes, a broad swath of like things to do as a character uh, in that player's handbook, and so it doesn't leave me wanting too much. There are a few places where I was like, oh man, I really wish we could have squeezed this other thing in there, but um, it's far, far less than in the, the DMG or the Monster Manual. Yeah, I was looking at it, and of course with the, the guidelines on, on in the DM's guide about adapting and, and modifying things like you you give an example of creating a new race and, yeah. and changing class uh, I actually I actually wrote that section ah excellent I really like that section <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things that uh, it, it comes to mind is that uh, you know there there have been you know races in the past that were uh, player character races and whatnot from other editions or other source books that uh, I could easily see trying to recreate, and it was um, like the Thrykreen mm-hmm. and other. I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, oh, yeah, that's, well, that's <laughs> how I would say it, anyways. Uh, it's an insect race from yes. um, Dark Sun. Uh, go ahead, Dark Sun. Dark Sun, yes. And um, so, what I was, you know, it's just I, it made it very easy to just kind of go, okay, well, here's my blueprint for kind of the mechanics of doing that conversion and just looking at what exists and swapping some ideas around and just kind of making sure that uh, my end result uh, reflects what's there, which is something that anybody can normally do, but not everybody feels the confidence to do. And I think that by giving people examples and by giving them, you know, license to do that, you've created an environment that I, I, I hope will, will help people enjoy the game more. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And you know, honestly, we could say more about that process, right? Like, I, I could, you know, and I might still write, you know, articles about race design, uh, for example, that would expand upon what was in the DMG, and I think it would be useful material. It's just, you know, there's only so much space. Uh, that having been said, I am very pleased, and actually one of the big indicators that I've had that we've been successful with this version of the game is that there are a lot of people out there already creating their own custom content, and that's what's really exciting to me. And then when you can tell that something has really grabbed the imagination of your audience is that the the people out there that are playing the game are starting to make it their own very, very quickly. I mean, I'm seeing people coming up, not just with the conversions of other races, but also like, oh, here's my new race, or like, oh, here's this new spell that I created. And the amount of stuff that's already being produced by the the player community is really, really exciting. And I mean, that's, that's kind of how I know we have a player's handbook, my friend John Lighthouser was creating new backgrounds. And <laughs> yes, <them>. exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we wanted to make it so that if you want to create a thing for this game, it's relatively easy. And a lot of, a lot of times what we did was we stripped out a lot of the interactions and interconnectivity between various game components to make it easier to substitute your own stuff in. So mm-hmm. I hope that that you know with the efforts we made to get 
to the point where creating custom content is easier in this edition. I hope that's all going to pay off, and I think I'm already seeing that happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly know that uh, it, it. You know, I'm 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 the type of guy who likes to hack anything, and mm-hmm. it immediately had me going off. Especially um, the uh, proficiency die optional rule had me sure. had me spinning off into all sorts of interesting design spaces. And that's um, that's one of those optional rules that uh, Mike Merles, my boss, he loves that one. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I. I, there are also a couple in there that make me shout and point at the book and go, that's crazy, but you know, <laughs> brilliant, which was my favorite one of those is under the plot points section. Mm-hmm. One of the optional things that uh, you can do with plot points is that uh, and, you know, if, ev- if you decide to use them, anyone at any time can spend a plot point and take over being the DM. Right, and I just said that's crazy, and and of course the name of that rule is the gods must be crazy. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and the thing is, um, we had a lot of fun writing those sections of the DMG, and every time we would start putting something together like that, I was constantly amazed at how little I really had to say to make something functional. And and I know that you know there's a lot of repercussions for gameplay when you you know add an optional rule in like that, but. Just to simply get too functional was way easier than than in, well, really, in any uh, big RPG system that I've ever designed for. Now, I mean, it's pretty easy to look at a game like Fate, for example, and and see how easy it is to uh, integrate optional rules and stuff like that. The game was built for that from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for D&D, we wanted to capture some of that ease um, while still maintaining, you know, the D&D the expected D&D milieu if you, you'll mm-hmm. uh, pardon the use of a Gygaxian phrase uh, mm-hmm. and, but you know we definitely were thinking about it from the from, uh, from that angle because we knew that we wanted to have people you know, kitbashing the game really quickly and so we wanted to make sure that it was easy for our players to do. That had the nice side effect of making it easier for us to do. Fantastic. Um, so one of the one of the house rules that um, I may have missed it in the book but uh, that we've added for our campaign mm-hmm. was um, we started our players off with a few more hit points because I found the first few levels to be a little more dangerous um, but uh, what I was looking at in terms of the numbers of the character classes I realized uh, started comparing it to D&D 3 I kind of skipped D&D 4th edition because I was really into mutants and masterminds back then and I just never had time but um, D&D, like, third edition, really had this paradigm where as you level up, your base attack bonus kind of almost stays even with your level. Right. And in the new one, obviously, you're, you're changing it from a plus... You know, you're, you're over the arc of a 20-level career, your proficiency bonus is going from about plus 2 to plus 6. That's right. Um, that's going to make... In my experience, that's going to mean that the D20 and other bonuses on your character are going to weigh much more heavily than before. How does that impact long-term play? Uh, So, on the one hand, you're right. It does uh, mean that the the variability of the D20 has a much bigger impact. So, uh, we definitely are aware of that. On the other hand, we also sort of set our baselines for accuracy so that they really heavily favored the player characters in the first place. So while it is true that there's high variability in the, the D20, you know, we're already kind of expecting you to be at like 65 or 70% accuracy. I can't remember exactly what the number is, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we already, we, we definitely tilt the odds in the player's favor 
as far as the long-term impact, I think what it does is it means that anything that felt scarier at first level, like defensively, uh, that will start to drift downward. But you never really reach the point where anything is truly trivial, nor is anything truly out of your reach. Um, the example I like to think of is, uh, you know, if you run into a hobgoblin and he's got chainmail and a shield, he's sitting at AC 18, which is pretty high for a monster, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, you'll get to the point where you can, you know, carve through that chainmail and shield pretty, I mean, with, with, with much greater effect. So, um, I, I think that we lean more on hit points and damage in this edition than mm-hmm. on pure accuracy. And so that's where you're going to see things like, uh, I'll give you a good example. Um, in my uh, Forgotten Realms campaign that I'm running right now, uh, my players just ticked over to fifth level and got their extra attacks and got you know their bigger blastier spells like fireball and a fight that would have been a pretty big challenge to them due to the number of enemies they were facing previously mm-hmm. uh, got a lot easier when they can take out one guy and then take out another one with a second attack right so it wasn't so much about like oh can I hit these guys it's that I can do more I can take more guys down or I can uh, you know take out more guys all at once and things like that so I I feel like it is true that accuracy is no longer as important a factor in our game, but damage and hit points are a pretty big factor when we talk about combat. So mm-hmm. I think we've we've simply made a conscious trade there. Okay, excellent. Um, so one question that pops up is, uh, and this just pops up in my mind, um, because you've been responding to feedback from people and listening to feedback, is there a rule that you think people maybe are misusing or misunderstanding that that you you think uh, you might want to clarify, or is there any any particular thing that pops up in discussion a lot that that maybe you wish you'd had time to revisit? Uh, not really. I mean, there's a few more subtle things out there, like the way concentration works. It's easy for people to gloss over that. Um, I think the only the only point of confusion I ever really consistently see is with any effect that changes your base armor class. Things like Mage Armor or the Barbarian or the Monk each have class features that say your armor class becomes 13 plus your dex modifier, or your armor class is... Uh, 10 plus your dex modifier plus your wisdom modifier. The key thing to note is that anything that's changing the formula you use to calculate your AC doesn't stack with anything else. You just pick one of the two, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you're a monk barbarian you pick to use either the monk version or either or the barbarian version and that's it right there's no there's nothing additive there and we specifically worded it the way we did as this is the change to the formula so that it wouldn't look like it was purely added or rather so that it wouldn't be purely additive and then we wouldn't have to add in a bunch of notes about like oh and here's how you stack things like armor class right we we want to avoid the concept of stacking entirely right it was a, a point of complexity we didn't want to have so uh, we worded it that way specifically, and I think it still might be a little too subtle for some people, so uh, it's a question I end up answering a lot on, on Twitter. Okay. Um, so, obviously, you've, you've, we've, we've talked about which books you've worked on, what you've done, but um, you, you said that uh, you wish you had a little more time. I mean, obviously, every artist <laughs> kind of feels that way with any work of art, but... Um, with the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, what other things would you like to stick in there? Oof. Well, I mean, I could go on all day, actually. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> Pick the your thing favorite. is, 
<laughs> I am I am a I'm a big proponent of having lots of different ways to run individual campaigns, and so uh, I'll actually give you a good example of something that could never have made it into the DMG, but that if we were doing the DMG two or three years from now could right, and that is I just uh, restarted my Greyhawk campaign. My players in my Greyhawk campaign they reached tenth level, and they were all like, you know, tenth uh, level is cool, and we're starting to get pretty powerful, but. Uh, these characters have, we've been playing them for a couple of years now, and now that the books are actually out with the final versions of the character classes, we'd kind of like to try playing new characters. So my player said, okay, we want to set aside our 10th level characters for a little while and then come back to them periodically, but we want to play first level characters again and, and start a new campaign. So mm-hmm. um, those... Uh, 10th level characters are set aside now and we create new characters and for the new campaign instead of being a like the sorry let me back up a little bit because I have to tell you about my campaign by the way <laughs> so my, the Greyhawk campaign that I've been running for the last uh, two-ish years uh, it has been sort of a war-themed campaign. It's basically the, the backdrop for the campaign is a war between the Iron League and the Great Kingdom. And so everything over the last couple of years has taken place against that backdrop of like a fantasy medieval war. Um, this time, when we now that we're kicking back over to first level and starting over, I'm doing an urban campaign, and I'm doing like an urban sandbox. And uh, the, what I'm doing is basically saying, okay, guys, make whatever characters you want to. This is going to take place in the city of Greyhawk, and uh, we're going to run a campaign where you guys are going to be sort of the drivers of a lot of the action. You guys get to make decisions. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of put all the pieces out there for you and let you decide who you want to deal with, what you want to do, what are your character's goals are, like, what are you trying to accomplish? I'm not going to be hanging a villainous plot out there in front of you. You instead are going to simply interact with the world around you. And that's a pretty big challenge for a lot of players. So what I'm doing is meeting halfway with uh, a fair number of adventure hooks that are dangled out there. And they can choose to pursue them if they want to. But what I've been doing is I've been building a system. Uh, and it's a very, very simple system. But a system where I can... Uh, look at the decisions that the players make over the course of an adventure and say, okay, when word gets out about these decisions that you made, how does that affect the way the people in the city look at you? Right? And so I, I basically have carved out nine, I want to say, nine individuals or organizations that are sort of the big players in this campaign. Like these are the, and I told the players in advance, like these are the characters and groups that are going to be really prevalent in the city while you guys are there. And so every time the players make a decision that is is one of these things that will eventually uh, be visible to everyone, that is going to then ripple throughout those uh, different power groups and NPCs, and that will change the way those NPCs react to them. So for example, in the campaign, and I don't think, yeah, I think my players are are well aware of this. Uh, in the campaign, at the very, very start, the very first session, uh, a member of the Society of Magi comes up to the group and is like, I have a job for you. I want you to go into this wizard's tower and retrieve the spell book. The wizard was killed under mysterious circumstances by one of his own experiments. Go in there and get the, the spell book and bring it back to me. As the, the rep from the Society of Magi leaves, a member of the Thieves Guild uh, pulls the party's rogue aside and is like, listen... If you instead bring the spellbook to me, I will pay you twice as much. So now they have this sort of uh, conundrum. And this is obviously one of the simplest examples, right? Mm-hmm. But they have this sort of conundrum of who do they give the book to once they receive it. And 
giving the book to the Thieves Guild or giving the book to the Society of Magi obviously will impact how those two groups feel about it. But at the same time, you know, Tensor, who is one of the main characters, will probably not be happy if they turn over a book to the Thieves Guild because the Thieves Guild is, you know, they're, they're criminals, right? So Tensor, his opinion of the party might go down, and so he might become more of an antagonist as a result of this. Um, and so it's a new system that I'm working on and still kind of working on all the bugs, but basically what I do is when I prep for my adventure, I sort of highlight, like, hey, if the players do this thing, make a note of it because it's going to impact these characters or power groups or whatever, right? And so I really want to let the player's actions dictate the reactions of these major movers and shakers in the campaign um, without it feeling totally arbitrary. So mm-hmm. this is something that this is a great example of something that I'm developing for my own campaign that I think eventually would make a great rules module or optional rule or whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just not ready yet. Right? right. And I think we're always going to be coming up with techniques like that. So, you know, the sky's the, the limit on what you can do to make your D&D campaign behave the way you want it to. It's just, you know, we only can include so many of them. <laughs> That's true. And um, it's, it's, it's funny how I, I keep drawing parallels between uh, game design decisions in D&D with other systems that, you know, I've been seeing recently. Um, I mean, you brought up Fate and, and other things. And one of the things I noticed in... Uh, um, in the backgrounds for for player characters is that um, mm-hmm. they very much feel like uh, not quite aspects from fate but sure. something similar where you know here are a couple of like bullet point descriptors yeah. that will help shape your personality um, and that kind of narrative focus I think has really changed for me how how D and D character creation uh, yeah flows because I think the players get really excited about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it's one of the. That's a great example of something that um, we definitely drew inspiration from other types of games. Mm-hmm. Um, but even you know, it is similar to aspects. But I can even trace my first interactions with a system like that uh, back. Uh, I want to say almost ten years ago, to a game called um, the Z- I think it's the Zantabulous Sorcerer of Zoe, and it is uh, a it's sort of indie RPG about. Uh, characters in a like a fairy tale setting that use this sort of s- same system that I think it's called the the PDQ system and uh, it's you know just a pretty light game where your skills he said with air quotes are <laughs> are short phrases and it's a you know it's a technique that uh, Fate uses and a whole bunch of other games use it too but you know we we actually in the DMG there is an optional rule for effectively using our background uh, traits as skills, which is basically exactly how as <coughs> excuse me aspects and then the skills in the PDQ system work. But you know even in the normal base game, we liked the the sort of narrative focus that that engendered, even if you weren't using it mechanically. And we really wanted to make sure people knew, like, yes, we actually think that, like, role-playing and interaction is just as important to this game as combat, and just as important as exploration. So we want to find ways to highlight that, but we don't necessarily have to make everything have the same mechanical weight, right? It's just, you know, we want to find a way to draw your attention to it and make you think about it, and uh, I think that's where we really succeeded with the the background traits is that you know we get a lot of the a lot of the the good benefits of um, like aspects and stuff like that without having to necessarily tie them too strongly into the core of the mechanics. Mm-hmm. 
One of the, the really wonderful things about playing D&D is, of course, the big playground that you guys have created over the, the decades of, of the game's existence with the different settings. And um, uh, my brother is actually DMing for us right now, and mm-hmm. he, he's not... He doesn't usually run our games, so it's it's always nice to see somebody step up and, and embrace something so quickly that they're willing to run it. Um, he's running the uh, the Tyranny of Dragons modules for us, so I've pointedly not been reading them, but uh, it's been a very uh, enjoyable return to uh, Neverwinter and Faerun um, for us because you know it was it was like something that we'd only experienced in video games for a long time, um, but uh, it. it I, that familiarity isn't what the game is limited to, though. I, it feels like, to me, the system is really designed to kind of play the way you want to, and, and we've been talking about this a lot, but my other players have also jumped up and started looking at D&D and trying to think of ways that they could run different games. And um, the idea that these these rules are, are flexible enough to kind of apply so many different ideas to. I also love the fact that you talked about Wuxia or in, in, in the in the DM's guide because sure. of course we published Tinsha here yeah. at Vigilance Press. But uh, that was that was like a point where I was pointing at the book going, Yes <laughs> Well you, you know, I mean it's something that D and D has done. I mean I, I love D and D for its its you know very unique D and D tropes, but at the same time it is also used by a lot of people as uh, generic fantasy game system, even though it's got a lot of its own sort of like this is a D and D trope, not a fantasy trope. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like my my favorite campaign setting is Alcadim, right? And that's very non traditional fantasy, right? It, and I was actually just looking at Alcadim books last night because I think down the road uh, I'm going to be running an Alcadim campaign probably in the next couple of years. And so like I. It's funny, D&D walks this weird line between D&D is D&D, and it's its own thing, and D&D is a thing that other people use to make their own settings, right? Or make their own games in different settings. So I think it has to be flexible enough to do both, and I'm hoping we achieve that. I've been pleasantly surprised in creating um, homebrew material for my campaign, how easy it's been, because... You know, I sit at work all day, and I've really got to focus really hard on making sure anything that we work on looks good and it's balanced and it, you know, it, it's exciting and appealing. And then when I go home at night, I do the exact same thing with my own campaign. <laughs> so there's no rest for the wicked here. But you know, I, I'm I've been pleased at how I'm able to to take something like Alcadim and just in my own spare time putting things together, put together some, you know, custom content that even though it's not been through the playtesting or development, I can kind of look at it and go, yeah, yeah, that feels feels true to what it's supposed to be and also feels appealing to me, you know, sort of mechanically. So, um, yeah, I don't really know where I was going with that, except that I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about how well we can adapt to other settings. So let me ask a couple of just kind of rapid-fire questions here. Okay. Um, uh, what's your favorite two monsters from the Monster Manual? Oof. Okay. Uh, favorite two monsters. Uh, one of my favorites is the Marrow, uh, and that's mostly because I think the new illustration for the Marrow is extremely badass. Uh, I, I love it. And... Oof, what would be one of my others? I I really like the Kraken. Um, wow, did I pick two aquatic monsters? That's funny <laughs> because I that's funny because I almost never run aquatic adventures because I don't 
don't just it's not a thing that I typically do. Uh, so yeah, but I I really like the Kraken. I really like the uh, I really like the the Marrow. I just think the Marrow looks completely badass. Yeah, all of the um, art in this new edition is amazing. I've been really yeah. I, I, I think the the Monster Manual is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, the um, there's there's a lot to love in in the Monster Manual, and so picking my top two is, is tough. What was the um, hardest one to to maybe make pick a challenge rating for, or one of the uh, other ones? Anything anything at the higher CRs mm-hmm. is kind. I don't want to say it's a crapshoot, but it's it's really difficult to predict because you don't know who's going to roll what for initiative, and some of those spells could like a like a high level spell or like a really powerful attack could take PCs out of the fight really, really fast. So anything in the higher CRs is really difficult to pin down. Also, anything that uh, is a spellcaster, uh, especially like spellcasting NPCs, those are really hard because they can kind of veer into severe glass cannon territory. Like, they don't last very long, but if they get off their spells, that's a big boom. And that's a feel that we want in the game, but it's hard to peg a challenge rating to that because it can be so swingy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know just one of those things that we have to kind of accept. And one of the things we did late in the process in the Monster Manual is anytime we came across a monster or an NPC that we felt was too much of a glass cannon, like, okay, you know, if they win initiative, they kill the party. If they lose initiative, they don't take a turn. We tried to find other ways to mitigate that. So, for example, let's take... I'm, I'm just making this up, right? But if there was a, a basically an NPC wizard who had some high-level spells but didn't have a lot of hit points, we might do things like say, okay, you know what? We're going to build into a spell list shield and mage armor so that we can give him a higher challenge rating and he'll be more satisfying as a higher-level challenge because he'll live longer, right? That was just a, a part of the process. So... Uh, but yeah, it, anything anything high CR is is always difficult. Okay, and um, now to kind of hit you with some of the questions that you're probably not gonna probably gonna dodge. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, you guys have put out the three core books, mm-hmm. um, and you've worked in partnership with uh, with Cobalt mm-hmm. uh, for the for the Tourney of Dragons. What what books are coming out from, or what are you guys working on now for from Wizards? I mean, do you guys have a? Uh, um, I mean, I know the, uh, the the DM screen is coming out in January, I think, right? Or is that uh, uh, DM screen is? I can't remember the exact date, but it is early or mid January. Okay, um, so yeah, that one uh, I'm definitely looking forward to. Me too. It's a great screen. I actually it? got to. We we have. Uh, one or two copies here in the office. Uh, we don't even have our own copies of it yet, but Ooh. there's one or two floating around, and I got to use one the other day, and it is great. Fantastic. So, do you guys have a plan for what book is coming out next, or are you pretty much just like collating ideas right now? Uh, well, I can't really talk about uh, any future products. I mean, I, I know that's not okay. a great answer, but uh, anything in the future that we haven't announced yet, I, I can't talk about. Um, you know, we're always looking forward to what's next in the game, but I, I really would like to say that what we're trying to do is make sure that we can maintain a level of excitement with any mm-hmm. future releases, as opposed to like, oh, well, it's just the next D&D book, right? So that means we're taking a really hard look at everything from... Uh, content to like there's the very concept of a product to uh, even the format right so mm-hmm. like we're we're looking at all kinds of different things because we want people to feel like every time there's a new release for the game it's 
a big deal. Like it, we don't want it to ever feel tedious or mm-hmm. boring, right? So we, we're really looking at new ways to keep the excitement going. Very cool. I have to say, um, just just to drop in my wish list, um, deities and demigods. But you know, okay. that's just right. <laughs> I'm sure you, know, you haven't I, heard that one yet. No, I mean it, it's absolutely <laughs> one that that like even I think you you could do something really great just because like clerics for example, um clerics are a class that are really strongly defined by their by their deity, right? Mm-hmm. And so anytime, you know, you have something as diverse as like the pantheons, you have a potential for really diverse characters, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that people will want to see down the line is is you know oh can we get cleric domains that are specific to individual deities as opposed to like the sort of more generic like life and light and stuff like that like I, I absolutely think we could down the road do something like oh you know what you can uh, here's the uh, I don't know just pick one randomly here's the helm domain or here's the paylor domain as opposed to using you know uh, war or uh, uh, war or light because those deities have some very specific doctrines and traditions associated with them. Cool. So, yep. Um, so let's see another one you probably ha- can't say anything about. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, um, PDFs. Is there Are there any plans yet to release the, the books uh, for sale in PDF? Uh, let's see here. I can't really say much about that except that um, we are always looking at new ways to deliver our like our content right mm-hmm. and so uh, again i you know i mentioned this before we were recording but uh i'm just a game designer so i don't have right. a lot of for these kind of things but you know uh just passing the questions along yeah, from the we're, fans. we're absolutely like we're <laughs> looking at we're looking at different ways to get the content out there and Good. i can't really talk about any of the details right now very cool so before i let you go because we're we're getting close to the to mm-hmm. when you have another the project to do. Switching hour. Yeah. What uh, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that uh, you really wanted to cover that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I I'm really like I just want to kind of go back to the response that we've gotten so far. I'm super pleased with how much people are liking the game, and it's both flattering and humbling when I run across people who say like, "Oh, I'm I'm having more fun than I've had with D and D in a long time," or like, "I'm coming back to D and D after being away for 20 years," or you know, "Oh, I'm I'm using Fifth Edition to get my kids into D and D." Right. So it's really. You know, it's really great for me to hear that, and I, I actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, charity auction dinner for the Child's Play charity, and I ran into quite a few people that are sort of my colleagues in the gaming industry, or that are the video games industry, or just people from here in Seattle that came up and had some really nice things to say about 5th edition, and it's just, it's so gratifying to hear, and I, I honestly can't hear it enough, because it's easy before the thing comes out to only see its flaws, or it's easy to like forget that there are people out there who are going to take this thing that you've made, and they're going to have fun with it, and they're going to bond with their friends, they're going to sit around a table and tell really great stories, and so hearing about that... I kind of can't get enough of it because it's really it's really validating and it's really a chance for me to sit back and say, okay, you know what? We're all like all the effort that we put in, all of that that hard work over the last three years. That was all absolutely worth it, just because of the enjoyment that we're giving to people and the the enjoyment that people are taking out of playing the game. So, um, yeah, I like I am I'm super pleased with the way it's going, and you know. 
personally, I'm a D&D player too. I run two weekly D&D campaigns, and I'm probably about to start playing in a third. So it's been really great to be enjoying my own game. And um, not you know, not that that doesn't happen all the time. I enjoy a lot of the games that I that I've worked mm-hmm. on, but. Um, until a game is finished, you never know if you're going to really love it or not. And mm-hmm. you know, the, during that development process, it, all you are doing is sort of finding its flaws, and so it, it's easy to lose sight of, of the good things about it. So I've been very pleased with how well it's been suiting my own campaigns. And uh, well, I mean, it says a lot that I've got two ongoing games and about to add a third. Yeah, that's that's something. I mean, when I was working on. Uh Mutants and Masterminds. Um, when I was writing for Green Run, and it was it was uh, it was a point where I was so absorbed in the rules that when I got to the gaming table, I'm like, uh, can we play something else sometimes? You know. Yeah. <laughs> but and, uh, you know, it can it can absolutely be tough during the development process yep. to force yourself to keep playing your game. But I, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, but we had a moment in my Greyhawk campaign where we played a session, and at the end of the session, uh, Mike came to me. He's like, you know, I. I think that was our best session yet. And I was like, yeah, I absolutely agree. And he's like, and this is the first time that it's felt just like we're playing a D&D session and not playtesting a game. And that was the point at which the game really started to click for us and come together. And like having those moments throughout the process was really great. But at the same time, like, I'm so glad it's all done now. I'm so glad it's out there and we're going to play. And I would just, the other thing too is, I would encourage people who are out there playing the game to really dig into it and make it your own game and find out what's working and what's not because down the road we're going to continue to ask people like what do you think about the game what what are you enjoying what are you not enjoying and hopefully be able to respond to those things right so I I highly encourage anyone who is is even thinking about running some D&D to you know put it through its paces because mm-hmm. there's going to come a time not that far down the road where we're going to be asking people to tell us like what are you doing with the game like what do you how do you like it what is, what's working well for you what do you want to see improved right so it's uh i i want and and you know honestly i love when people come up to me at conventions and say let me tell you about this cool thing that i'm doing on my campaign because it just a it inspires me to make make myself better but b it gives me such a a better understanding of the kinds of things people want to do with the game and that's just going to make me better as a designer right understanding what people want more so i'm uh i'm always like if anybody sees me at a convention this year and let me assure you i'm traveling more this year than i have ever traveled in the past so <laughs> uh, if you see me at a convention this year don't hesitate to come up to me and tell me about your campaign or your character or whatever because i am in fact excited to hear about it Fantastic! I will take you up on that. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll be seeing you again. What's your what's your next can- uh, what's your next convention that you plan to be to? Uh, let's see here. I'm probably going to be at Gatacon in Victoria, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am hoping that I get to go to Origins again this year. Uh, there is a slim chance. I might go to Winter Fantasy, but I also have a couple of other conventions around that time, uh, a couple of professional conferences to go to. Like I, I'm going mm-hmm. to GDC in San Francisco this year, so um, I don't know my full schedule yet, but it, it's looking like it could be a very busy traveling year for me. <laughs> well, good luck with the travel, and, and again, thank you so much for joining us and talking Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. Um, I've been having a lot of fun playing it. It's uh, it's 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 
I'm one of these people who has come back to it after after really not playing D and D seriously for 20 years, and it's just been a joy. So, well, thank, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right, and uh, to all of our listeners, um, I hope to see you again soon in the new year. Uh, we'll be taking a little break from uh, Vigilance Press podcasts, uh, but that's pretty normal for us. So, um, until next year... Uh, oh, and of course, we do have a, a new Christmas PDF out there if anybody wants to tune in and, and grab a Mutants and Masterminds product. It's uh, it's $1.49. It's, it's the Krampus for the holidays. So, go ahead and uh, check out that on our website, VigilancePress.com. And of course... For D&D, uh, you can go to the Wizards of the Coast. I'll put those links in the podcast link below. Rodney, thanks again for, for stopping by. No, thank you for having me. And everyone listening, stay vigilant.